You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. Hello, I'm your host, Tom Shamba. Today, I'm talking with Carl Adams. Carl served at Phan Rang, Vietnam from 1967 to late 1968. Good morning, Carl. Uh, so let's get started today uh, by telling me when you got interested in the canine. Uh, well, I got, uh, I was at Phan Rang Air Base, you know, in Vietnam. And uh, I got interested in canine when uh, we had gone TDY, which means temporary duty under uh, to Okinawa. I was in SAC, and it was time, uh, it was uh, our B-52s uh, time to uh, bomb Vietnam. So the B-52s went to Guam, the KC-135s, the tankers, they went to uh, Okinawa, and uh, I was lucky enough to go with the tankers. Guys that went to uh, Guam uh, got up trained into uh, loading bombs, so they worked like crazy. Uh, but we went to Okinawa, and uh, when we came back, after six months, uh, long story short, uh, the wing had lost its mission, was being disbanded. Uh, the 52s were gonna stay in Guam and uh, the base was being turned over to the Navy. And, and uh, the, the rumor was that everybody was either going to Thailand or Vietnam. And so there really wasn't much to do at the base because there weren't very many planes. and. Uh, uh, so we decided we'd, we didn't like waiting. You know, we're 19 years old. We didn't like waiting. And so uh, we volunteered to go to Vietnam. And they said, well, uh, fine, uh, but we don't have enough people here right now to process you out. So go home for 30 days. And when you come back, we'll process, process you out and you'll go to Vietnam. So we said, great. So we did. We went home. We came back and our orders had been canceled. We didn't, nobody knew why, but they were canceled. We weren't going. And that kind of made us mad. So uh, one of the guys, Larry Smith, we called him Snuffy. He found out that if you were canine, you are going. So we went and volunteered for canine. And uh, they said, well, don't you know, if you, if you volunteer for canine, you're going to Vietnam. <laughs> don't you remember 30 days ago we were here <laughs> and we volunteered to go in the first place? Said, All right, so uh, off we went to dog school uh, in, at Lackland Air Force Base. Uh, we had two weeks uh, before we were going, so they asked us if we had enough money to, uh, to, to go home for two more weeks. And we said, yeah, we didn't have a ten, two cents to rub against each other, but <laughs> yeah, we, we had enough money to go home. And so off we went, and Snuffy went on, on ahead of us to uh, canine school. And then uh, we reported right till uh, we came back, we got processed out, and we went to Lackland, and we were there for I'm trying to remember, it's been a long time, but it seems like it was two to three months of dog school. And um, I, had a, I had a dog by the name of Mooseheart. Can't, can't forget that name. And uh, we, went to, uh, we went through dog school together and uh, it was fascinating. We, we fell in love with it, it was great. We enjoyed every, every minute of it. The, the training was very intense. But it was there was no baloney about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, we learned how to patrol. We learned, you know, we uh, taught our dogs how to alert using their three senses. You know, just uh, 
uh, hearing and sight and smell. And we learned how to read the dog, in other words, understand what, what he was doing. And, uh, but we didn't go to Vietnam with our, with our dogs. The, uh, we were gonna go to Vietnam and take over a dog that had already been there for at least a year. So uh, off we went, we uh, took a train to the West Coast and uh, there we, we got on our, our flight that we were you know, assigned to go on. And it was a charter airplane. Flew into uh, Tonsonut Air Base right outside of Saigon. Stayed there for a few days. And then uh, uh, you, you would check the, uh, the, the bulletin board and it would have everybody's name of, of everybody that was leaving the following day and, and where to report uh, and where to report. And so uh, finally our names, uh, our names were on it. And uh, we knew that uh, Snuffy was at a place called Fan Rang. And uh, so we showed up at the assigned time, John Vansan and I. And uh, I said, oh, you guys are lucky. You're going to Fan Rang. So, oh, this is great. That's where Snuffy is. So off we got on a, a C-130 later and uh, flew, to, uh, flew to the air base. And there we were. And then uh, from that point on, uh, we, we were assigned our, uh, our dogs. And uh, we spent two weeks in training there, getting used to the, our dogs, which you can hear mine in the background. Uh, you know, he's a ham. Uh, he's a white German shepherd. Part of the conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. A 95 pound white German shepherd. And trying to be a real boy, not doing so good at that. Used to giving it a shot. But anyway, uh, and that was it. And uh, I got a dog by the name of Andy. And his tattoo number was 314F. Uh, they had a tattoo in their ear. That's how they, uh, that's how they could keep uh, all the dogs separated as far as names go, because the dogs kept the name that, that they were all uh, uh, donated. All the dogs were donated from civilians. And uh, uh, Duke was the most popular name. There, I don't know how many Dukes there were, but there was an awful lot of Dukes in Vietnam. Uh, but uh, the tattoo numbers were unique to each dog. Was so, the kennels uh, finished when you got there? Yes, the kennels were. They, they were finished. And, uh, uh, but they were brand new. They were brand new. Uh, we, we got involved with laying the sidewalk uh, uh, that, that led up to each kennel from the, from the uh, uh, I guess, uh, the, the, the vet's uh, office and the uh, administration office out there. Uh, so we did that. You know, we mixed the cement and poured that, but the kennels themselves were already done. And uh, it was, they were a, uh, see one kennel was nothing but dogs. Uh, and then uh, the other kennel was uh, half uh, regular dog kennels and then the other half was an open area. And then there were four isolation kennels in case the dog was really sick. And so he could be kept away from the rest of the dogs. <clears throat> but, um, we had, when I was there, uh, we had 66 posts out there. So I had 66 dogs out there uh, every night. And uh, we were divided into three groups. And the first group uh, went out at uh, just about sundown. And uh, they, uh, and then the second group went out a couple hours later. And then the third group went out uh, a few hours later than that. So by about 10 o'clock at night, uh, 
all the all 66 posts were manned. So uh, the first group that would go out, they would be posted on every third post. And then the next group would fill in between them. And then the, the last group would fill in between them. And then, uh, so we ended up with 66 uh, dogs out on the line. Uh, there would be, each post was approximately two to 300 meters long, depends where you were in the terrain. Uh, and approximately from the uh, outer perimeter uh, road to the barbed wire was approximately 100 meters. And it, that fluctuated too, depending on where you were. Uh, and the, that area between the road and the, and the fence line was uh, a lot of cactus and a lot of scrub trees, you know, eight, 10 foot high uh, scrubby trees. Uh, some places that had a lot of elephant grass with grass about almost uh, above your waist and below your chest. Uh, and uh, that was it. And then naturally there was a path along the fence line where everybody was walking. And uh, all the fence line was, were, uh, was uh, two rows of concertina wire, which is rolled up barbed wire, uh, laying side by side. And then a, a third roll was mounted on top of, of, those, of those two. Uh, but there was no uh, uh, alarm system. There was no Claymore mines. There were no trip flares. There was, uh, matter of fact, when I got there, there was a large portion of the perimeter that didn't even have any barbed wire. Uh, they just told you, go, you know, go about that far out and that's your area. Sometimes you went further than that, <laughs> you know, just there was no, you know, and you're out there by yourself. I mean, that's what a lot of people don't know. Uh, we were out there by ourselves. Uh, you know, you would be 100 to 300 meters away from the person that was next to you and you didn't see them, you know, uh, with all the brush. And, and that was basically, you know, uh, your job was to detect uh, anything happening out in front of you, uh, report it in, and if it was a penetration, stopping the best you could to help finally arrive. And so we devised a, uh, uh, a signal system, uh, an unofficial signal system that only the canine guys knew about. And that was when, uh, if your dog went on alert, uh, you would call Central Security Control, which is basically the police station, with your two-way radio and <clears throat> ask them what time it was. And they would tell you what time it was. And I can't remember, it's the 10 series, you know, 10, 12, or whatever it was. But anyway, you, you'd ask what time it was, and they would tell you, and you'd thank them. But what that meant is the guy on either side of you knew that your dog was on alert, and they would start heading down towards you. They wouldn't come all the way, but they'd come down so that if you ran into trouble, they could help lay down a crossfire. So there would be at least three against however many were, were penetrating. And that's what we did. You know, that's how it worked. You, uh, uh, and everybody backed each other up. And it, and it did, that was the great thing about it. Everybody backed everybody else up. It didn't matter who was next to you. It didn't matter if you were good friends in the barracks or if you didn't even like each other in the barracks. It just didn't matter. Okay, once you were out there, uh, we were brothers and, and we, we backed each other up on and off the perimeter. You know, we might argue amongst ourselves, but nobody else could pick on canine. That was a bad idea. And uh, that was great. You know, <clears throat> and, you know, looking back on it, I would say that, that was probably the most uh, incredible uh, or the most perfect 
example of peer pressure uh, I've ever experienced because uh, you were scared out there, but you went out to everybody, everybody went all the way out to that wire and patrolled by themselves. And because you didn't want to let your buddies down and you figured everybody else was out there, you better get your butt out there too. And so that's the way it worked. And we did. And uh, that was the best bunch of guys I've ever known in my life. It's an honor to still know them. Uh, because these are the guys that ran towards the gunfire. You know, it's kind of interesting you bring that up because to me, it's a lot, a lot like a brotherhood that you would see in the Navy SEALs. They're a very tight group of people who have to count on one another all the time. And they're still brothers today. And canine, we may not be as sophisticated as the Navy SEALs, but we had to count on each other all the time. Yep. I mean, we weren't sophisticated at all. Uh, you know, I talked to, and what was interesting is that uh, we were really isolated uh, from the rest of that, at that time, Air Police, they changed the name to Security Police, and they, they changed the name every few years, just to give them something to do, but uh, still the same job. But anyway, uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I love that part. Talking about how sophisticated we were. Oh, yeah, yeah, we weren't sophisticated. The, uh, but we, yeah, we were isolated uh, from each other. Uh, uh, example, uh, we, we all stayed in the same barracks. Uh, we uh, had our own armory. Uh, we, uh, um, we never associated with, with the other uh, security police or air police or, or Panther flight, which was the night flight that, that, that was supposed to be our backup. Uh, and I, I talked to one guy one uh, that I met after we were home, and he was on a Panther flight. And I said, you know, and I asked him about that. I said, we never, never associate with each other, okay? And he says, well, <laughs> nobody wants to make friends with a dead man. Wow. <laughs> you know, because uh, we used to talk about it amongst ourselves, you know, what are our chances of, of living through this? And the general consensus was 50%. 50-50. And then we'd laugh like hell and have another beer. I mean, you know, that's just the way, that, you know, you got to remember these were 19, 20-year-old kids, okay, given a, a, a job that you, you have to volunteer to do. They couldn't make you do that. There are a number of jobs in the Air Force that uh, it had to be filled by volunteers because it was, it was too dangerous. And being a canine handler was one of them. I'm sure if they didn't have enough, they would have you know, volunteered people, but uh, that wasn't necessary. There were enough guys that to volunteer that it filled the ranks the way they needed it. But like uh, uh, explosive uh, <laughs> ordinance disposal, uh, you had to volunteer to be firemen, you had to volunteer. Uh, working with nuclear weapons, you had to volunteer. Uh, but there was always enough volunteers. But we were proud of that. Okay. Uh, and then the rumor was that there was a price on our heads that the, the North Vietnamese Army had put put on our heads, uh, and either a uh, patch, uh, canine patch from our uniform, or a uh, uh, the dog's ears with the tattoo uh, was proof that you had taken out a killed canine guy, and and you got a cash reward for that. And I'm not sure if that was true or not, but th th that was the story, and 
we were proud of that too. We thought that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, and then uh, you know, uh, I extended. I it's a you know it's a twelve month tour. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I extended mine for another six months, mainly because I didn't think I had done enough. Um, you know, I'd been in maybe in that length of time more than five, less than 15 firefights, you know, uh, <clears throat> but they didn't last very long. You know, uh, we think that uh, some of them we found out later were uh, them testing our defenses. Uh, the major penetration happened right after I left. And uh, I'm sure guys like Craig Lord, you know, have talked about that extensively, they were there, but uh, and we know that now that, that some of the things that happened were in support of that to see how, how we responded to small forces, five, six guys. And uh, that's the way it was. Uh, and then one day somebody got the bright idea while we were there to uh, uh, clear off the area between the uh, road and, and that fence line. And so the bulldozers came through and just cleaned it up, looked like a Walmart parking lot. There was no cover at all. And uh, we knew that whoever thought of that wasn't going out there, you know, they'll leave that to us, but you just be out there. I mean, <laughs> there was no cover. And some of the night you were out there, boy. You were just out there, especially the, the east side uh, <clears throat> was wide open. The area outside the fence line, and it seems to me was at least 300 meters was what was called a free fire zone. Uh, anybody in that zone, uh, being in that zone was considered a hostile act. And uh, we, didn't have to, we didn't have to ask permission to do anything. Uh, we, didn't have, we didn't have to ask permission to open fire. We didn't have uh, to pop a, a, you know, a, a rocket flare. Uh, we'd have to, we just told them what we just did. And so, uh, you know, we went out there with uh, uh, a basic load, which I can't remember how many, how many magazines of ammo, uh, and then any other ammo you wanted to take. And we took as much as we could. We would take two bandoliers on top of what they gave us. And then I would take a, an ammo box full of loaded magazines. And they, they put bunkers uh, up near the road, one man, two man bunkers. Uh, supposed to be a fallback position if you were in, you know, in a firefight. Uh, nobody went near them because they were full of scorpions and snakes. Uh, but it was a good place to put your ammo because you knew where that was. And so that's what you would do. You'd drop off your ammo box and head out into the boonies and, and see what was going on. But, uh, oh my goodness, uh, when you sit down and talk like this, it's, uh, it's amazing how many memories come back. You know, things yeah. that you hadn't thought about. And then... Uh, I didn't think about it at all when I came back, uh, not even a little bit. I, I came home on a Wednesday and by Monday I was, I had an apartment, I bought a car and I, uh, that was my first day of work. I mean, I just jumped right back into being a civilian, but I was lucky. I, I uh, got a job as a trainer at the police canine school and the, uh, the gentleman that, that Chuck Hart, the man who owned it, and was the head trainer. He says to me, he says, well, son, he says, you don't know blank, he says, but I'll teach you. Because <laughs> he was doing things that, that we had never heard of. Uh, you know, uh, 
you know, to turn a dog loose and stop him. Uh, once you turned our dog loose, he, that was the end of it. Matter of fact, uh, the UCMJ, which we were all under, that's uniform, uniform code of military justice. It was uh, the law, okay, if you were in the military. And everybody was subject to that, to those laws. And according to that at the time, turning your dog loose on somebody was uh, equal to shooting them. Because there was, you can't call back a bullet. He sure as heck couldn't call back one of our dogs. You know, you know, we used to yell out when we were training, you know, when, when we wanted to stop biting, but uh, they never did catch on to that. We had a heck of a, <laughs> it was just one thing they just refused to, it was a, you had a struggle to get them off of whoever they, that they were attacking. But uh, we like that too. Uh, I still have a like scar on my arm from my dog that didn't want to let loose. Yep, I think we've all got, got don't have quite as much skin as we used to. <laughs> That's the way it was. But when you, was when you were in firefights over there, did you notice any problems with your dog after that? No, Andy, you know, some dogs would just, uh, were very, Andy would go nuts. I mean, if I was going to have to fire, I mean, uh, I would have to, uh, I would put my left hand underneath his collar, try to put something to grab onto and try and hold them back as best I could and then firing one arm, one hand with, uh, you know, CAR in, in the other hand and fire that way. Because uh, he'd be jumping up and down. Just, you know, I'm surprised he never got shot. Because uh, he just would, he'd just go nuts. Uh, and then when it was over, it was over. He was not a big fan. He wasn't afraid of it. He, made him, he just would go crazy, barking and snapping at the air. Well, two of the guys I've talked to, Bill Fisher and, and Bob, Mace, both of their dogs went deaf. Um, they called in for support, which I assume was Hollister's. And uh, after a few rounds, their dogs quit reacting to the sound. And they, uh, Bill ended up with a new dog. Bob was 11 months in already, so he hung on to his. Now maybe, because Andy never had a, there was no indication that he had a problem hearing at any time. What do you remember about your gunfights? They were short. Uh, you know, they usually would start off with uh, uh, either they would, uh, you know, we'd take incoming rounds. You know, Andy would go on alert and almost immediately afterwards, they, you know, apparently they knew where we were and the, the shooting started. Uh, uh, but sometimes uh, I'd have some time from the, you know, uh, when Andy would alert to, to something started happening. And uh, tell the, Andy could tell the difference. And, and uh, once you've been with your dog for a long time, you knew how to read him. Uh, I could tell if, if uh, he was alerting on a Vietnamese person or if he was uh, alerting on an American. I know that sounds weird, but, uh, and the difference was, and, and that was because uh, two different, completely different hygiene habits and diet. And that affects, affects their scent. And if he smelled a, a GI, he would alert. You know, I would know that somebody was coming. But the way he just, that was it. He would just would alert. He wouldn't be having a fit. Uh, if there was a Vietnamese, it, it would be a deep growl. And he couldn't, it really wasn't even audible. He'd be, you'd just feel the vibration come up the leash because he'd be, you know, at the end of the leash tight. And, and you just feel that he was, you know, the, the deep growl. And it says, well, here we go, you know. And then uh, you'd, pop a, you'd pop an illumination flare, which was a rocket-propelled flare 
that went up or maybe, what would you say, maybe a hundred feet, maybe. And uh, it would pop, there'd be a piece of white phosphorus under a, a dinky little parachute uh, that would float down and it would stay illuminated for 15, 20 seconds, I would guess. And uh, as soon as you lit up the area, it would light up a pretty good size area. Uh, if there was gonna be any fire and that's when it started. I fear they've been spotted and here we go. And, uh, you know, they always started the firing and I never stopped firing until they stopped. And uh, You weren't there during the January uh, attack that uh, Craig Lord was involved in? No, because I left in October uh, okay. of 68 and the following January is when the uh, January 25th, when the big attack came. You know, these were just small attacks. We had the biggest one was uh, uh, on the south side uh, by the by the strip gate. You remember the strip gate? Yeah. And it was just to the east of the of the strip gate, or west of the strip gate rather. And uh, it was my twenty fifth birthday, and uh, or twenty twenty first birthday rather. And so to celebrate, I was gonna at exactly midnight. I was gonna launch a flare. And so I went over, there's a, there, there were towers by that time uh, that the uh, Panthers manned with a M60 machine gun. And it was a tower maybe 50 yards down from where, you know, from the gate. And uh, I went and told them at midnight, I'm gonna launch a flare, don't worry about it. You know, we're celebrating my birthday. So I, and I had my little transistor, illegal transistor radio with me. And uh, when I heard, and they always gave the time, time hack and he said at the midnight it'll be, I can't remember if they call it zero, zero, zero or whatever, but it was gonna be midnight and it goes beep, 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 and then a long tone. That was when, when he gave the long tone, I launched a flare in the air. As soon as I launched a flare in the air, all hell broke loose. <laughs> Happy <laughs> birthday to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was so stupid because uh, there were big rocks right behind me. And uh, it was weird because the, the, the rounds were, uh, their rounds were hitting those rocks. You know, and, and uh, uh, the ricochet sounded just like it does on TV. And I remember, you know, I'm just I'm 21 years old, you know, I'm just a kid. Uh, I remember laughing, because I'll be damned. <laughs> you know, listen to the, you know, and, and the best way to describe how the, how the round sounded coming in, uh, if you've ever seen Saving Private Ryan, that incredible opening there when they're, they're coming on, on the beach in Omaha, you know, Omaha Beach. And you hear the, the zzz is, you know, almost like bees going by. And that's what it sounded like. And, you know, they were like us. Every fifth round was a tracer, except theirs were kind of a greenish color. Ours was red. So you could tell the difference, you know, unless they were firing our ammo, because their, their weapons could use our ammo, and, but our, our weapons couldn't use theirs just because of the difference in size. But anyway, uh, you know, that was a pretty good one. Then they, uh, afterwards, the, uh, uh, 101st Airborne uh, did a patrol out in front when it was all over and uh, found a couple of them. So that was good. That was a pretty hot area because of the village right there at night, don't you think? Right. Yeah, it was hot there. I'm surprised. I mean, the other thing that was right there, uh, a little bit to the east, but uh, was the, uh, the, fuel, uh, the fuel dump. And you know, we had these big tanks that uh, that had the, the jet fuel and and all that in it. And you know, you land a couple of mortars in that, you you could really cripple the base. 
Well, it was just never... east of there was the end of the runway, wasn't it? It was just to the right of, if you're looking down the runway, it was just, and with your back to the perimeter, it was to the right of the runway. Yeah. I said when I came home, that was it. Uh, I didn't experience any negative uh, reaction to me having been there. Maybe because of the people I was working with, they thought it was pretty neat that I had gone to Vietnam. You know, I was the only one that showed up with a tan, you know, in October. But uh, so I didn't experience any of that. Uh, what I did experience, so, and, and uh, uh, they said it was PTSD, uh, was uh, uh, survivor guilt. I had trouble with it, I had an awful lot of trouble with it. And because again, I didn't think I, you know, I didn't do enough, you know. Uh, and uh, my, uh, the VA came through and, and uh, uh, some terrific counseling. And I learned how to handle it, and I'm okay. It was my wife that, that just finally said, "You need some help," because I was, you know, bad dreams and all this kind of stuff, and uh, angry for no damn reason. You know, uh, I didn't ever drink much. Uh, I drank when we were in. As soon as I got out, I was done. It was kind of interesting. You know, we all drank. Uh, I never saw any kind of drugs over there. I know that there's a lot of talk about that, but. Not, not in our group, that's for damn sure. Uh, but we drank. It was three, two beers. He had to drink a lot of it. And we did. And uh, But when I got home, I was just, I was done. Yeah, I uh, think then uh, a lot of people experience the anger portion. I'm not so sure why that is. I mean, we see that even today with Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Uh, we flew into McCord, which is in, uh, right outside of Seattle. And that's where we were just, we were discharged upon arrival and took three days to process out. And then uh, they gave us new dress uniforms and all that stuff. And, and we were in our dress blues and they drove us back to, to SeaTac Airport with an airline ticket to get us home. And it was nighttime and I was with two guys that uh, we had served with. I can't remember who they were, but it doesn't matter. And uh, uh, the three of us, uh, we had quite a bit of wait time. And while they were checking into uh, to their flights, I was standing by one of the big windows that overlooks the uh, the ramp, and it was spooky because there were no flares in the air, there were no bunkers, nobody had a gun. I'm thinking these guys are setting ducks. It, you know, it was scary. And I, what was really scary, I didn't have a gun. You know, I'm used to having a gun. I mean, I don't want to be able to shoot back. Because my goodness, but the funniest thing that happened was. Uh, uh, we decided that since we had time, we would let's have our first real American dinner. Let's have a steak dinner. So we go into the restaurant and we ordered the biggest steaks they had and, and enjoying ourselves. And uh, to right to my left at the next table was a airline captain and two stewardesses and they were having their dinner. And all of a sudden, maybe four or five tables over, this young lady stood up and there was the first miniskirt I'd ever seen in real life. And I thought it, and I, uh, it was incredible. <laughs> and knee jerk reaction, I jumped right up out of my chair, pointed and yelled, look at that. <laughs> and as soon as I did it, I went, oh no, because everybody just went silent, you know? And she gave me, I mean, I should have turned into a pillar of salt. I mean, I, even my mother couldn't give me a look like that. I mean, whoa. 
she did not appreciate the uh, the comment. And so I right away sat down and, and the stewardesses and the captain are just laughing like crazy. And the captain leans over to me and he is the you know that that voice like they do over the PA systems of a long time, son. He <laughs> says, You have no idea. <laughs> and the girls were just oh, they were just laughing like hell. Thank you, Carl, for your time today. Certainly appreciated what you had to say and Thank you for listening to War Dogs Podcast.